Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lip. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. So I'm going to change my tune a little bit on one thing. So I will vote for any Democrat who can actually push an infrastructure bill through. Because if they don't expand the friggin' highways in the next year or two, I'm just going to start ramming people off the friggin' road. So you're pro-infrastructure. I'm pro-infrastructure. Yeah. Do that and I will switch my allegiance immediately. We should note that it was raining and Nick had to drive to the people podcast. People lose their the minds the second a, a, a millimeter of water falls from the sky. You'd think they'd never seen it before, every single time. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry, that was like an hour and a half. <laughs> I'm not happy about it. So think about that. That's how you get people to vote for you. Not all this identity politics bullshit. Just give me wider roads. That's all I want. It's infrastructure people week. want. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyways, hi guys, it's Barstool Politics. I'm your rather grouchy, angry host, Nick McGuire. Joined as always by uh, Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi guys. Hey Nick. Hi. Hi. Um, before we get started, uh, if you guys like the podcast, have questions, comments, beer suggestions, guest suggestions, uh, any or all of the above, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, uh, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast, uh, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, and then for new or returning listeners, we are partnered with uh, Predicted, which is a, a real a real money pro a political prediction market. Uh, you can think of it as a, a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, like I've been saying the past few weeks, we're looking at it all the time to see uh, where people are putting their money in terms of uh, Democratic challengers uh, running for president, uh, who's up, who's down, who's really, really down, uh, and you know how that fluctuates uh, over time. Uh, and then interna uh, international markets, too. Um, issues with North Korea, trade, China, things like that. Theresa May. Theresa May, obviously a big thing. Yeah, we'll get to that later. Mm -hmm. So one of their more interesting ones right now is that Will May still be prime minister at the end of the month? Will Maduro still be in, in office at the end of the year? Some really interesting ones in terms of world leaders. Definitely. Um, so for you guys, what's great for you, uh, if you open up a $20 account, uh, predicted will actually match that $20. Um, so, for example, if you open a $20 account, I just said that. I literally <laughs> just said that, and I switched the sentences around what I normally do. Um, yeah, you receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. All you have to do is use the uh, promo link, predicted.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20, uh, and check it out. That's Thanks, great. guys. Um, yeah, lots of... I, I love that we're doing more world politics stuff because there's so much going on right now. And I feel like we haven't touched on it um, a lot over the past few months. But the UK's on fire. The EU's, oh, God, it's not good. Um, we're best friends with North Korea again, which feels really, really good. 
I think we're going in the right direction. <laughs> oh, boy. So we're, we're going to talk about drunk Pelosi, too. Yeah, so we'll get to that later. That, yeah. so, so a whole bunch. We're going to cram a whole bunch of stuff into this opening topic about world stuff. So major international developments this week, both in North Korea, who is once again shooting missiles, and in Europe, which has held elections for the EU parliament. On the North Korean front, President Trump denied on Monday that North Korea had fired any ballistic missiles or violated UN Security Council resolutions with its recent missile test. In doing so, Trump took the took the word of the of Kim Jong Un over the assessment of his own national security advisor and his Japanese host Shinzo Abe. Trump offered an alternative assessment uh, in a tweet noting, "Quote: North Korea fired off some small weapons, which disturbed disturb some of my people, but not me. I have confidence <laughs> that Chairman Kim will keep his promise to me." Is he called Chairman Kim? That's what the president calls him. So just two days prior, <laughs> National Security Advisor John Bolton had told reporters there was no doubt that North Korea had violated the Security Council resolutions by firing short-range ballistic missiles. Now, this is my favorite part. North Korea's foreign ministry attacked Bolton, calling him a war maniac who has, quote, <laughs> different mental structure from ordinary people. <laughs> Not wrong. No, right, yeah. So another additional fun wrinkle is that Trump also saw with Kim Jong-un over former Vice President Joe Biden after his Democratic rival was branded a fool of low IQ by North Korea state media. They have the best insights. Oh, And on the other side of the world, the EU has had elections where populists made some gain, gains, but not as many as, as some expected. Let's start with North Korea and then break down the election results in the EU. Phil, uh, what's your take on all these developments? Some, some pretty interesting developments. Uh, yeah, I don't... Uh, with North Korea, I don't... I, this is all a little baffling to me because mm -hmm. Trump is the only one, even amongst his advisors, right? So it's our allies, it's his advisors. He's the only one who, uh, other than North Koreans, who are insisting, who is insisting that uh, that this didn't happen, that these missile tests didn't happen. Um, it's a very Trump thing to do, right? We've gotten sort of used to this in the U.S., I think, where there's this very clear, obvious, factual thing and Trump says that's not actually the case and and we've we've done that enough that we've kind of gotten used to it but i think to the rest of the world this is uh uh i think disturbing yeah <laughs> it, i mean it's not this is not something in which he's trying to put a spin on a thing that happened right it's not that uh, uh this isn't like shades of gray and he's trying to push it one way or the other this is something that happened and he's denying it happened um and that that's a that's a weird that's a weird place to be. It's a strange contrast. Somebody pointed out that it was two years ago that uh, it's been two years since they did a test like this. And the last time was when it launched Trump into his fire and fury stuff. So the last time this happened, Trump was threatening to decimate them. And now he's gone the other way, which is this denying it ever happened. And I don't know how to make sense of that other than Trump is really trying to hold on to this talking point or this victory that he has or this argument in fact, I, I think I read that he's he's convinced that he's told people in his circle that he's convinced that this will be a winner come election time. The one thing he's done is is to de-escalate North Korea. That doesn't point out the fact that he's the one that escalated it. Mm -hmm. right? He threatened yeah. to, to nuke them. So I don't know. I mean, I, it's it's so contrary to the evidence that I, I don't know how to make sense of a president standing up and saying this thing that we all saw happen didn't happen. And we see such a contrast between, again, you talked about over and over and over again, between his administration, Bolton and others, and the president. And this isn't the first time where the administration is pushing one thing. And usually the administration is more aggressive 
and then Trump is more wishy-washy on something. So John Bolton and the entire establishment has been pretty hard on North Korea. And then, yeah, you're right, Phil. Trump comes and says, oh, no, it's no big deal. We're still friends. I, I trust him. That's a really weird place to be. Is there anybody that's on his side in the... Uh, so I, Kim Jong-un. LeBron, well, right. <laughs> Sorry, right. Yes. I, anybody, and, and certainly some of his supporters. But I, I'm thinking about like within the intelligence community. Most of these issues we talk about, talk about Venezuela, Iran, whatever, there are divisions. Right? You can find people who mm -hmm. think we need to go to war with Iran. You can find people who think that's a terrible idea. I, this doesn't seem as divisive a thing. This seems like the intelligence community and the the people of, who are uh, who are dealing with North Korea all seem to be of one mind about it, other than Donald Trump. But I am I wrong in that perception? You're not hearing anybody no, embrace the no Trump one. position of yeah. This I mean it, it's it's a ballistic. I guess there is some ambiguity on whether a missile, especially a short-range ballistic missile, is a ballistic missile or just a, a, you know, a missile. But it sounds like everybody's come out and said, yeah, this was a ballistic missile. I mean, so there's there's clarity there. Mm -hmm. But, I, you know, I'm not hearing anybody else make the Trump argument. Well, I mean, it's an interesting time, too, especially with tensions with with Iran right mm -hmm. now. Um, and it's I, I, I find it somewhat funny that <clears throat> we're taking members of the administration's uh, word for what happened, especially Bolton's word, after everything that's gone on with Iran, and nobody seems to think there's a reason for, for believing any of that. Having said that, it's North Korea, and they sure as shit did this. Yeah, um, yeah I, I mean, I think it's what you said, Phil. I think he, this, is, this is going to be his legacy point, and he really does not want to let this go. Um, I, I think... If you manage to end the Korean War and de-escalate a, a, you know, a potential conflict that's been simmering for the better part of half a century, that's a major, major win. And I, I don't know. As much as he has, he has escalated things previously, that's neither here nor there. Because he's going to de-escalate it and then completely just do away with the problem. So that's the only thing he cares about or people will care about in the end. And I think uh, we talked about Iran last week. This week he tried to de-escalate Iran, right? So we're seeing this 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 sort of gap between Bolton and Trump now on foreign policy, both in Venezuela, also in North Korea and Iran. Mm -hmm. The weird thing is, to me, it, this appears like North Korea is trying to escalate the situation, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're saying, we're intentionally going to test this to show you we're not happy with the status quo. You know, we want sanction relief. We want all of this. What the U.S. has said, that's not going to happen. So where do we go from here if North Korea is trying to escalate? And Trump is saying, oh, it's no big deal, it's no big deal. I'm not sure where the where all of this goes. It's probably, it's not going to be productive. And Trump is is coming off kind of weak on this. And I'm surprised yeah. there hasn't been that critique yet. Mm -hmm. Well, that was going to be my question. Is, it, is there a point where Trump changes his tune on this? If he thinks that he needs this or that this is an important um, uh, aspect of his, his re-election, then... He, then he goes down this sort of denial route, right? No matter what North Korea does, he's going to insist that it's going well. That seems beautiful for North Korea. If I'm North Korea, I think, hey, I've got, I can do whatever I want. I can continue to escalate and to try to, I mean, you're, you're, you're sort of saying that they want to escalate and this could get frustrating and that they're saying, you know, pay attention to us and nobody in, in the US isn't. But uh, it, it seems like if I'm North Korea, I can continue to test and develop weapons and the U.S. is going to pretend like nothing's happening. This is this is brilliant. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I think he can you can do that up to a point, but he's also he'll turn on a dime if they escalated. This was a fairly 
you know, low, low barrier that they were they're trying to, to test. Um, and I think he understood that it was easy enough for him to kind of at least partially get away with this kind of rhetoric. And they knew the same thing. But I mean, if they start um, uh, refining nuclear fuel again or, you know, there's a nuclear test. Yeah, right. Something else to really escalate this issue, the, the situation back to where it was, you know, a few months to a year ago. Um, I don't think he has any choice, and he absolutely will go back down that fire and fury road. I, I have no doubt about it. But if if launching, if testing, if doing missile tests, which is enough to, rightfully so, upset and and scare Japan and South Korea and all sorts of other people, if that's not enough to do it, what like do you? This is one of those things where I think logically, I think you're exactly right. You know, the the thing to assume would be if North Korea starts doing this, then Trump's gonna spin on them but I, I would have logically thought that this would have been enough to do that and so where like you know it's it's one of those i i don't know this is where we get mm -hmm. into the unknown i don't know what that threshold is like what's the point and that's where we've talked about this before the danger of misperceptions and miscommunication that's where we're in that zone where if north korea thinks hey we did this and there was no response let's take it one step further uh that that's where you get into this dangerous territory and I, I, yeah. I have no idea i don't know how to predict that but that's why having a foreign policy doctrine from from the president himself is so important because then there's there's signs right you know you know that if you do this the administration is going to respond that way with I, I think there is a doctrine within bolton and pompeo but not trump so we're just waiting to see at what point will trump be pissed off and then flip and then we don't know how the u.s is going to respond is it militarily is it more crazy rhetoric International politics is all about subtle signals back and forth. It wants stability. It wants to know how the process is going to play out. And Trump defies all of that. Well, I mean, you guys keep talking about logic in this situation. I'm not <laughs> sure why you're doing that. It That's just fair. seems illogical. Um, I, I mean, as much as you think he doesn't, he has a very simplistic doctrine. It's if there's a direct threat to the U.S., if they said something to directly threaten U.S. interests or, you know, the U.S., the the, uh, the West Coast or something, he would be on top of that in two seconds. I think he, from his perspective, unless there's a, a credible threat to the country that would pull support away from him uh, in terms of, of the 2020 election, he's not going to give a shit. Right. I, 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 I think he, it's very one-dimensional. So I, I, I want to, I, I, I don't disagree with you but i think there's a my my i would put like a caveat or a slight twist on it which is that i i wonder if it's not that it's a threat to the u.s it's that it's a threat to trump right so you look right. at russia and what russia has done and that's that is a threat to the united states but it's not a threat to trump it benefits yeah. trump and so he's not going to lash out at it and mm -hmm. so I, the extent to which and, and in this case they may line up in that threatening the united states if the if Trump didn't change his tune at that point, it would be a threat to Trump. But I, I also think that North Korea, in some ways, has figured out how to play to Trump. You know, that you know, you mentioned the the uh, Biden stuff. Taking a shot at Biden as low IQ is like a that seems to play into you know. I, it feels like they know what they're doing in dealing with Trump and kind of playing to his ego and mm -hmm. and and whatnot. Well, that that's a that's a really revealing though, right? I mean that they're uh, we, uh, you had something else to say, but we should come back to no. that because I think it's an interesting yeah, point. Well, I, I mean, don't have I, I, I have nothing else to say. Okay, <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> but on that point, right? I mean, there's this uh, there's this mantra in U.S. foreign policy that politics stops at the water's edge, right? You don't criticize another American politician. 
And here, North Korea attacks a you know an American citizen, a politician, the former vice president. And instead of defending the, that U.S. citizen, Trump takes the side of Kim Jong Un, which is really really weird. And then yesterday, the press followed up with a question to say, "Did you really want to do this? Did you really want to take the side of a dictator over the over the former vice president?" And he can, he doubled down and said, "Well, I think they're right. I think he is low IQ, right? And that, <laughs> it is it is really telling. And it just it's it's such a bizarre place that we're at right now. Well, they weren't Bill, critiquing let me, let his policy clarify. choices. <laughs> right, right. Let me clarify." 28 minutes ago, President Trump tweeted the following. <laughs> I was actually sticking up for Sleepy Joe Biden. Oh, my God. No, he said that? <laughs> yes. I was actually sticking up for Sleepy Joe Biden while on foreign soil. Kim Jong-un called him a low IQ idiot and many other things, whereas I related the quote of Chairman Kim as a much softer low IQ individual. Who could possibly upset, be upset with that? So basically his defense is <laughs> oh, that's Chair- Chairman Kim called him low IQ, and I said he might be low IQ, but Chairman Kim's even lower IQ. <laughs> so it's just, just what? Does he think people believe that? that oh, I mean, that's, that's it's just terrible, right? I mean, uh. I, I, and to to your point, Phil, that for for Trump, it all depends about how it impacts him personally. And and I think in the moment, he felt like, hey, this this brutal dictator is attacking my likely opponent. I'm going to take that, just right. like you know the Russian intervention. So it's in my interest, even though it isn't in the U.S. interest mm-hmm. or the democracy's interest. And it's so <laughs> revealing about who he is and what motivates him. Uh, but there won't be any consequences, Nick. Nobody cares. No. Yeah. I'm okay with it. Yeah. He's Sleepy Joe. I don't like Sleepy Joe. <laughs> so, Stupid. Oh, well, <laughs> should we jump to uh, the EU elections? Yes. All right. So, Phil, you are our comparative politics expert. What do we think? The, the EU elections normally put people to sleep, but I think these were really, really fascinating. So do you want to get, kind of give us an overview of what happened? Uh, sure. I can talk a little bit about it. Yeah, the, the EU elections for sort of decades kind of put people to sleep, and nobody really cared that much about them. And then in the last... Uh, you know, 10, 15 years, they've become increasingly important. Um, and so they've they've started to play a more prominent role in European politics. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the takeaway, one of the interesting things about this is, is that you basically had two extremes. I wouldn't call them extremes. The, 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 um, the more progressive and the more sort of reactionary parties did well. Um, and talking about parties is also a little strange in a, in a multinational election. But um, environmentalists and progressives and pro-EU parties did really well. Um, but also anti, anti-immigrant, anti-EU parties also did well. And so you had this kind of movement to both extremes. The center parties, the more traditional parties, did really poorly. So in, in Britain, um, we'll talk about Theresa May and stuff la- later on, the conservatives came in like fifth place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the Brexit party did really well. And so you saw in Europe, for in Br- Britain, for instance, again, that polarization. You saw parties that took a really strong stance on Brexit, on Brexit. either we got to get out or this is stupid and we need to be a part of the EU. Those were the parties that did well. And so you see that kind of pulling apart a little bit. Um, we've talked about this with kind of far right parties a number of times this, this, uh, in, on this podcast over the last couple of years. And I, you know, it's all about sort of interpretation. The, the more anti-European, anti-immigrant coalition did well. They got, do you, they, there was like 30% yeah. of the vote or yeah. something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but that's all kind of it's you know what to make of that right 30% is both a lot and 
not nearly enough. Because <laughs> so, some thought uh, it was going to be much higher than that. Right, yeah. right. So they, they improved, they increased their number of seats, but not as much as people were thinking or fearing might happen. Um, I, you know, what will be interesting to see is what happens as a result of that, because the center parties, the, the, the traditional, you know, conservative and progressive parties in most of these countries, um, face, uh, you know, in order to govern and to come up with rules have to sort of partner. And, And I, I think they're more likely, I think what's more likely to happen is the kind of, especially the environmental parties, is are, they're more likely to kind of push those centrist parties in a progressive direction as opposed to the um, the more kind of conservative yeah. reactionary direction. But um, it, you know, it's hard to it's hard to say. Uh, the, it'll be you know the the conservative parties, the nationalist parties, have a, a history of having a harder time uniting. Right? If if you have you know, just imagine in a very simplistic way, if you have a a nationalistic Austrian party who thinks that Austrians are, you know, the best, um, and you have an Italian nationalist party who thinks Italians are best, and a Spanish nationalist party who thinks Spaniards are the best, and you try to get them to all sort of cooperate for policy, (laughs) they can agree on being, you know, anti-EU, but beyond that, they oftentimes have a hard time coming up with policy, whereas a pro-environmental party from various areas can sort of get on board together. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of me talking about, I don't know what the takeaway from that is other than I, I think we, we see in Europe a lot of kind of what we see in the U S which is this kind of polarization that's, a, that's occurring. You know, I think that that last point is really important, <clears throat> Phil, that even though there was some growth in the right wing populist, it wasn't what everybody expected. And there's, there's such differences between the populist movement in Germany, which didn't do as well as that, which, did, you know, France, populists did much better. Uh, in Britain, they did really well, but other areas, they didn't. So there's a lot of diversity, and they don't all get along. You're right. Other than disliking the EU and disliking immigrants, they don't really want to do well. Italy, I mean, Italy's a case where you're seeing populism really on the march. Uh, Germany, you, I think that was a sign that they're not ready to go in that direction. So it was yeah. it's kind of fascinating to just the, dive into that. The, the the core of like the policy making problem. I, I mean, I think Brexit is the is the sort of anti EU movement that Americans are most familiar with. And so if you think about what Brexiters want, they want out of the EU. But part of that ar- argument or part of that idea is we don't give a shit what Europe tells us, right? Mm-hmm. We don't care what Spain and Italy and them are doing. In fact, they should just leave us the hell alone. And so. The idea that of even them working with Spain, you know, a group from Italy who thinks similarly that Europe should go away, it's still the Brexit party doesn't care what's what Italy thinks. And so there's this there's this kind of core of a of a um, uh, it's it's a collective action problem. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree I, in in in. To to a to a point, I, I think that yeah, there there are very distinct voices depending on what country that you're talking about. But there is, especially if you want to look at at Britain, uh, the Brexit party was what six weeks old, yes. and they <laughs> took twenty two percent of parliamentary seats of the EU seats. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Nigel Farage, his whole new party. Yeah, that means something. Like regardless of of what uh, again the individual components of this movement are. And and as dumb as it is, where they just they don't like the EU, you know, they have issues with immigration. They also have issues with the structure of the EU itself, and that seems to be coalescing more and more. Again, regardless of what their 
performance was and it could have been better, but it's enough of a movement that they're starting to see beyond those individual boundaries and coalescing around two or three main points. And if you don't acknowledge that, you're going to have a serious problem the next time an, an election cycle comes around. I think that's... I, I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. It, and it helps us understand what's going on in terms of the populist movement. It's hard to know whether populism is this global, worldwide wave which is going to take over countries or whether it's a little blip. And I think we're seeing with the EU elections that it's more than a blip. It's significant, but it's not a majority. And then there are... You know, turnout was over 50%, which that that's hasn't really happened in a long time. EU vote. Yeah. yeah, so and people are showing up and, like you said, not voting for the centrist parties, voting for the green parties, the liberal parties. So that means that people are saying we don't always it's not everybody who wants populist. So you're right. There's this contingent who is supporting anti-EU, anti-immigrant, anti-globalization, cosmopolitanism. But there's also a really significant contingent that are pushing the exact opposite. So it's messy, just like it is in the United States. And Mm -hmm. that's somewhat telling. Mm -hmm. There's a I I see a little bit of a parallel in that. I see. I had a conversation with a friend today about the the nature of politics, and it feels like in the U.S. Um, we get so locked into our positions that we forget sort of why we're at that position, like the logic or the argument or the ethics or the you know the morality behind that position. It's just that this is my position. So I think about the abortion debate, right? Mm-hmm. And people are pro-life or they're pro-choice, and we just skip over all of the. The underlying, oftentimes, I don't, I don't want to oversimplify it, but a lot of times, you know, that's it's we kind of miss out on the the debate or the the sort of underlying arguments that get us to that point. It becomes this kind of identity position, um, and it feels a little bit like that with the with the EU. Like you and I were texting a little bit this week, Bill, about mm-hmm. how the the um, there are flaws. There are there are. You're exactly right, Nick. There are problems with the EU from its founding. There were problems when you have. Especially when you start having a common monetary without a common fiscal policy, there's lots of lots of issues. But it feels like those are issues that can be addressed. There are debates about you know the nature of how you know how immigration policy or finance economic policy should be addressed, and it feels like we've or in Europe at least people have quit talking about those core issues and they've just boiled it down to EU good or EU mm-hmm. bad, um, and and that then it becomes this sort of identity fight about who you are and what your what your belief is without actually addressing like you're talking about Nick the the actual complaints right come up with policy solutions come up with you know negotiate the the to to actually try to address some of the the critiques that people have mm-hmm. I, I do I think that Brexit has changed the conversation within Europe about whether countries want to leave and so I even the right. the populist parties are not necessarily pushing to leave the EU. They just want to cause trouble from within, right? They want to cause chaos. I think everybody looks at what's happening in the in the UK and goes, we want nothing to do with that. I mean, they're not talking about France leaving anymore. Italy is the one case. So Italy, this nationalist leader, Matteo Salvini, he's really, really interesting. He, he's the best. He is. <laughs> he's a good politician. He is very, very populist, very right. He does the anti-immigrant thing, and I think he's, you know, he he can drift into some fascist language, but he's also smart enough to know how to have a broad appeal. He's similar to Marine Le Pen, but I think he's probably better at Mm -hmm. at playing that game. He's very savvy. Right, so you you think that there could be, even though I don't think populism is going to take over all of Europe, Italy certainly could call early elections, and you could see him the next prime minister. You know, you're going to see, I think it's going to bubble up in in places. Mm -hmm. Um, Go ahead, ahead, Phil. 
I was going to shift the the discussion a little bit. Oh. So you go ahead and all right. One more point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no. I. I mean. I. I think you're right. It's is as much as we we talk about these kind of you know uh, fringe, not even fringe issues, but kind of a more um, you know populist issues that they kind of center around. This does come down to to policy, and I think similarly with the U.S. As much as we want to say, yeah, like we should work this out in the system that's been created and there's a, um, a method and procedure to do this, I think people domestically here as well as in the EU feel like that process is, is that doesn't belong to them anymore. The EU is run from Brussels and these countries that do have these massive populist movements are the ones that have taken the brunt of, of poor policy decisions. The same way that a lot of the people on the right feel like they've been left behind for decades at this point. And I, I do realistically think that it is a better alternative to work within the system, but when the system doesn't function mm -hmm. as its core, what other alternative do you have but to scream and shout and do something other than what the system allows you to do. And it's likely the system is going to continue to not spread benefits equally. So there are going to be opportunities for right-wing populist leaders who right. are good to seize upon those crowds and be thorns in the side of the EU or other global institutions. Absolutely. Populism isn't going away, mm -mm. even though I don't think it's going to you know, be this massive wave. We'll so it actually ties into the point that I, there was a really nice oh, segue. Good. good work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is that I, I, you're, you're right. Populism isn't going to go away, but there needs to be an argument made about why the EU is valuable. So the point I was going to make is that it, it seems like the, the, the ability to complain about immigration controls or whether you have to use the, the you know, whether you have to weigh your bananas in kilograms or not, or, you know, whether the policy coming out of Brussels is uneven or not. I, I, it feels like the, the reason that people can have those complaints is because the EU has worked so well, right? So if you go back to the beginning of the EU, if we go back in time 70 years, you just came out of a period of 70 years in which Europe had fought three massive wars, right? From the Franco-Prussian through World War One through World War Two. And the integration and the the sort of peace building and all that, the EU has been tremendously successful. And I think it's because of that success, because of the sustained period of peace and prosperity that Europe has had, that people are able to, to complain about the bureaucratic structure in Brussels. And so that doesn't mean that they shouldn't complain about it, but it, it's like easy mm -hmm. in a, after a period of 70 years of it working, not perfectly, but pretty well and, and achieving its goals. It's easy after that to complain about these little things. And, and sure. I, that's where I think um, the, the EU and people who are pro-EU aren't necessarily. And again, if you get into the identity of the EU is good without arguing the sort of policy reasons of why the EU is good and why, yeah, that bureaucracy is a pain in the ass, but here's what it's gotten us. That when you when you just get to the sort of all in at either end of it and don't actually engage in the discussion or the debate or the convincing, yep. that's where you get into this this problem. People need someone needs to be making a, a more convincing argument about why, despite its flaws, this has been a tremendously good thing for Europe for 70 years. And I, I don't see people doing that. Yep, agreed. What's going to be interesting for me to watch is, as, as you noted, Phil, the center parties, the center left and the center right have lost 
that majority control. So they've now got to appeal to the smaller parties. They're not going to appeal to the to the right wing populist. So it may empower some of these green parties, some of the libs, uh, to actually have greater influence. And it, so it might lead to more of a progressive in terms of environmental uh, focus of the EU, which I would argue is a good thing. Um, but it's it's going to be much more chaotic in the process, and and the right wing populists are not going to go quietly. No. Talk beer? Yeah, probably. This was this was good. We did North Korea and the EU elections. And Sleepy Joe. Yes. It's good. <laughs> All right, Phil, what do you what beer are you having out of this amazing mug that you have? Yeah, so I, I should say, first of all, I'm drinking my beer out of a Department of Defense beer mug that I got from uh Omar Husseini, one of my former students, so I want to give him a a, a shout out that's what the kids say these days right yes yes <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah so i'm drinking um uh, a dreamboat ipa new england ipa from foundation brewing company um which is i meant to look up the exact location of where they're from and i'm not gonna make you pause while i look it's in new england i think it's in maine um uh, this is good. It's a you know it's a it's a New England IPA. The, a lot of the IPAs are like I, there are bad IPAs, right? And then there are like these really mm. exceptional good ones. And then there are a bunch that kind of come together as just they're they're good. Um, and and Dreamboat kind of fits into that category. I looked up its I looked up on Beer Advocate its definition or its like rating before this, and they describe it as um, uh, this is the commercial. So I don't know if this is the brew- how the brewer described it. A super dank and resinous IPA. That sounds terrible. Dank, Who does dank and resinous. That kind of not- like a um, like a wet hoppiness, I would assume. <laughs> D- yeah. Dank and resinous should describe a basement and not <laughs> a beer. Right, right, right. <laughs> anyway, I don't think it's a, it's not a, it's it's much better than, than that description. Makes <laughs> yeah, uh, it's good. I mean, it's kind of it, it is sort of pungent. It's it's got that, uh, but it's got kind of a grapefruity Ooh. sort of tang to it mm. uh, yeah I, i'd gladly drink another i don't it doesn't like go in my hall of fame but it but it was good great fruity dink interesting yeah i don't like that As combo resinous a resinous resinous. resinous so nick and i are trying so my good friend who lives down in kentucky uh i was down in indianapolis for the qualifying last weekend and he brought me a kentucky coffee barrel cream ale mm-hmm. so we tried a couple of these beers these are all uh brewed in uh, bourbon barrels in lexington kentucky uh, and this one was more of a, almost like a desserty yep. cream ale. Actually, I will say, as as I started drinking it, as it warmed up a little bit, mm-hmm. it opened up a little bit. Yeah. It is a very distinct taste. Yeah. Um, more of a, more of a, like, let's have one and kind of enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, as, yeah, when we, before we started recording, so it, it tastes very much like, almost like an espresso yes. ice cream kind of thing. Yes. Um, and you would think that it would be kind of, kind of heavy. Or have a, a, a little bit of weight to it. It's very light. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very effervescent. Yes. Um, Almost like a toffee kind of toffee yeah. flavor to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, I didn't really think about it until now. But as it kind of warmed up just a tiny bit, it, yeah, yeah, it, it's it's growing on me. It's not one that you want super cold. You actually want it a little warmer. And yeah, yeah, it is. It's an interesting beer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, yeah. So thanks, Todd. That was a, that was a good one. Yeah. If um, you guys want to check out the beers that we have on the pa- uh, pod- pad- Padcast. Something <coughs> from Boston. Yeah, Something apparently. Boston, yeah. <laughs> um, check us out on uh, Untapped on iOS or Android. Uh, just look for Barstool Politics. Uh, you'll find all of our beer reviews on there. All right. Speed round. Oh, yeah. 
All right, so late last week, President Trump took the highly unusual step granting his Attorney General, William Barr, the power to declassify documents from the CIA and the country's 15 other intelligence agencies. Trump granted this, uh, his new authority, uh, this new authority for the purpose of examining the origins of the Russia investigation. This marks a dramatic escalation of Trump's long-standing claim that the FBI illegally spied on his campaign. Trump provided this authorization at the request of Barr, who could potentially use this tremendous power to take aim at Trump's political enemies. Publicly, the intelligence agencies are promising to cooperate any way they can, but behind the scenes, there is real concern about whether this could undermine critical sources and methods. Phil, in his selection of William Barr as Attorney General, Trump appears to have found a powerful tool in his war on the so-called deep state. This is really fascinating. What do you make of this extraordinary development? Uh, you know, longtime listeners can, if they were betting, would would make a lot of money by betting that I'm going to use the word norms a lot in this discussion. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, this is Barr has been really disappointing in, in lots. I mean, this fits into this notion of, uh, you know, if he truly believes that the president has unlimited powers, more or less, this could this could play into that. But. Um, yeah, this is concerning in that it is the politicization of the the legal process, the law enforcement process, the idea of of the president sort of targeting political you know enemies or rivals or people who are critical of him is concerning in and of itself. The idea of an investigation into why this you know where the origins of the uh, Russia investigation came from. I don't necessarily have a problem with that if it's not coming from the president, mm -hmm. right? If it came through traditional sources, if there were reasons to be concerned about it other than the president doesn't like it, that in and of itself is not necessarily bad. It's the way that it's been done. And, and the fact that Barr has so clearly over the past couple of months seemed to take a partisan approach to his job of attorney general this is where that earlier stuff matters, right? Where we complain about his his take on the 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 Mueller report letter and his, uh, you know, less than perfectly accurate uh, depiction of what the Mueller report says. That casts this sh this this shade of partisanship on Barr. So now, when Barr is in charge of this or doing this, again, those results are also tainted. And so all of this kind of starts to snowball and build on itself. So you have a, a partisan, you know, a, a politically motivated president turning loose a seemingly politically or partisan motivated attorney general to look into people who have been critical of the president. And I don't see anything coming out of this other than further politicization of the law enforcement community, right? Whatever the finding is, if, it, if they find that this was wrong, then, um, you know, nobody's going to believe it because they're going to, you know, chalk it up to Barr and Trump being politically motivated. If they find nothing, then, I, you know, I, it just doesn't, this is where when you make it politically motivated, no one is actually satisfied by the outcomes. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Nick? I, I mean, I'm, I struggle at this point to think of what wouldn't be conceived of as politically motivated. Mm -hmm. I think the the well is so tainted at this point, even if it was <clears throat> a legitimate request either by the president or by Congress for some type of information, uh, especially classified information, that it would be perceived as politically motivated, not only by the opposing party, but the American people too. Um, I think that there is enough 
evidence to potentially look into the motivations behind this investigation and not necessarily um, on the part of, of members, uh, you know, post-Trump administration once they took office, but certainly on the part of the previous administration leading up to the election, I think there's, there's some question as to their motivations. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with Phil on this. The way that it's being handled is ridiculous. Uh, in this situation, I think there should be a tremendous amount of, of intelligence that should be declassified um, from, I, I, I mean, related to this. Realistically, anything related to the election at this point needs to be declassified at a, at a, a faster rate than it is, <clears throat> just to have a more comprehensive, clear sure. picture of everything that's gone on, because it's so piecemeal and so manipulated either by the media or by the political parties to fit their narratives. And I just I just want the information. I don't want you to tell me sure. what it is at this point. But th th that's where this is. I, I'm, I'm talking over yeah. you, Bill. Shut up. Um, <laughs> it's, where the, it's where the argument that the Trump administration is making is is problematic. There's our favorite mm -hmm. word as well. Um, and that they're arguing about the Mueller report that this stuff is classified and it can't be released right. because of ongoing legal investigations and security and intelligence issues. So you can't make that, or, I, you know, you have to, it seems like you have to go one way or the other. You either mm -hmm. have to say that yeah, stuff needs to be protected because of these ongoing things and we can't do this, or uh, it all needs to be uh, let out mm -hmm. there. And that's, so I'm, I'm not saying your point is, is wrong. I'm saying that it, it points to the flaw in the Trump administration's argument here. Sure. In my mind. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, obviously there's, there's reason to protect witnesses and, you know, methods of gathering information, but yeah, anything beyond that, that's not going to put a particular person in harm or, or the way that uh, an intelligence agency gathers their information. I, feel like that should be fair game sure. and i think it's entirely reasonable to both of your points to have an investigation of that this was a unprecedented act where the fbi the department of justice was i'll use this word forced to investigate the presidential campaign i don't know if that's ever happened before in history there's real value in looking at how even assuming that the Department of Justice and the FBI did everything by the book, it's still valuable to reflect on that and say, where could we have been better? What wasn't perfect? Mm -hmm. And in fact, they're doing that. So the DOJ has the as an inspector general looking into all of that, right? So all of this process is under review. So then why does Bill Barr feel it's necessary to go and have another investigation? Why not let this inspector general report play out? If it comes, I mean, this is somebody whose job it is to look at whether everybody conducted themselves in. They do these but all the who time. Put that inspector general there. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, you know, then we get so far into the conspiracy theory of deep states. But I, I so I'm trying to wrap, wrap my mind around why Barr feels the need to do this, other than for political reasons. Mm -hmm. and, and that's that's what jumps out at you is that this is. And the other element of this is that this undermines could potentially undermine national security. I'm sure the CIA and all these other intelligence organizations are really worried that Barr, Barr doesn't have to get their approval. He can just release this information, declassify it on his own. That's a, to, to Phil's point, this is a normative entrepreneurial movement, right? This is, this is right. bizarre. So. What, what would be great is whoever the next president is, Republican, Democrat, like Donald Trump's out of office, whether that's two years or six years or 
six years. 14 right. years. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, someday, Donald Trump's not going to be in office anymore. And whoever that next president is, Republican, Democrat, to lead a national conversation about, hey, all of these rules that like be, that that we had in place but hadn't been tested about, you know, whether a president can be a sitting president can be indicted. How do we launch investigations into an into a presidential campaign? Should the FBI, should the Department of Justice be making statements about candidates before that? Let's have a, you know, have a yeah. presidential commission, like put some people together to talk about this, to argue it, to discuss it. Write a report on it. Let's evaluate these things. But that's where it would be great if that were done, you know, in six years by the next president to kind of, you know, do this without when 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 people involved have a stake you know a yeah. stake in 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 the game that's that's where you can't have that honest conversation mm-hmm. there are always going to be doubts about motivations and and whatnot so it's a good conversation to have it's this is just not the way to have it yeah i, <clears throat> I completely agree with that i i feel like if if there was a uh, democratic president immediately after trump and you decided to put a presidential commission together, yep. the immediate response would be, you're trying to curtail, uh, curtail my powers because you're not in power anymore. Yeah. Like I, I don't know that there's a good way out of this scenario, and there doesn't seem to be a bipartisan effort to do anything about this. I agree with you. Like All of this stuff, we need answers to all of these scenarios, and it's, it's not happening. And I'm shocked that not one of these issues is being handled to the point where we have a roadmap going forward. They have no interest in doing that because that curtails their, well, quote unquote, ability to govern at a future date, you know, regardless of when that future date is. And this is why Bill Barr is such a fascinating study because he's supposed to be an independent arbiter who's driven by the law and the constitution. And it sure feels like he's being driven by something else, whether it's partisan motivations, I think it's his view of the executive branch that the, you know, sort yeah. of a John Yu. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I talked a few weeks ago about Gerson, the former George W. Bush speechwriter, who says that that uh, Bill Barr is, is licking Trump's boots out of principle, right? I mean, he believes in a strong executive, and that's so much more dangerous here. Oh. I, I, I think there's truth to that. But John Yu and Bill Barr were not vocally advocating for the expansion of presidential power when Barack Obama was president, right? Mm. Yeah, they, they were are, busy. <laughs> they do believe that the presidency should have lots of power, but they seem to believe that a lot when Republicans are in office yeah. and a lot less when a Democrat is in office. This is true. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, let's go back international. Yes. All right, so United Kingdom Prime Minister Theresa May acknowledged defeat on Friday and announced her resignation as leader of Britain's Conservative Party. Standing outside 10 Downing Street, uh, May teared up, stating, It is and will always remain a matter of deep regret to me that I have not been able to deliver on Brexit. Oh, it's so sad. Yeah. May spent nearly three years attempting to forge a Brexit deal following the landmark 2016 Brexit referendum. Boris Johnson, the former mayor of London, appears to be the leading candidate to replace May. Boris Johnson, the mop-haired eccentric, uh, is a polarizing figure viewed by many as inspiring a, a, an inspiring political entertainer and by others as a dangerous populist. He is likely to move towards a hard Brexit. Uh, Phil, Theresa May's demise always seemed inevitable. She was a moderate and a sensible voice in a time of British chaos. Now the UK is likely to get the prime minister who fits the stupidity of this moment perfectly. Um, What's your sense of May's legacy and Boris? Boris. Boris's future. (laughs) 
I, I don't. I, Theresa May's her legacy is not gonna. It's gonna be bad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like it's not that she. You know, I can imagine there are certain leaders who are when they leave office are sort of defined by a thing. But as time goes on, people are able to look back and see the sort of the 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 totality of what they accomplished. But there, her her term was. <laughs> and always will be Brexit yeah. and a failure to bring the country together in any way, right? Whether it's, whether it's to get Brexit, whether it's to convince people that Brexit is not a good idea, it was just an, an inability to unite people. And so I, I think, you know, she's not going to be remembered as a, as a villain, but she's not going to, you know, she's going to be, yeah, she's, it's not going to be good. Boris Johnson is, um, I, I mean, he would, he would complete in my mind, the sort of collapse of of, of Britain or the tumble of Britain from this yes. sort of world power respected Winston to, Churchill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, he's just you know I I don't I don't know that I, I maybe I could be convinced that he's a dangerous populist. He's he's a populist. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just more of a buffoon. I yeah. think right. I mean even Theresa May put him in the the essentially in charge of foreign affairs to keep him like lots of reports are to keep him away from from government right to keep him out there somewhere <laughs> else so uh i i'll be interested to see if he actually emerges as the the leader i mean the thing about all of this is that what we saw in the brexit fight is that the conservative it's not just britain the conservative party is deeply divided about how to go about this and so this is going to be a battle to pick a new leader for the conservative party um, and I don't know that there's any guarantee that a certain person's going to emerge. I could see that going either way. I, I sort of suspect, and then I'll shut up, that someone like Johnson will probably emerge. I think what is likely to happen is that the only path out of this is either another vote, another referendum, or it's going to be a hard Brexit because they're not going to be able to negotiate something else. And so what might happen is someone like Boris Johnson emerges and that's they go over the cliff. And that that I it's shocking to me that that might be the direction it's going to go. But it seems like that's where it's going to go. There should they should be whoever is elected as the conservative party leader will become the prime minister. There should be a national vote on this. They, They should they should have a vote to reconstitute the parliament. It shouldn't just be a passing of the baton to some new prime minister as decided by the conservative party. But that's what will happen. Nicholas. Mm-hmm. Feel strongly about Boris Johnson? I, I mean, I do in the sense more related to her legacy than anything. You know, we, we talk about the, the populist movement in, in the EU and in the U.S. Um, these are not forces that you trifle with anymore. You don't send Julius Caesar out into the wilderness to get rid of him, and he comes back, you know, ready to cross the Rubicon and fuck your shit up. Like, it, you, I just... You just you don't you don't do it, and that that just speaks to the weakness of, of her, in in my in my opinion. I I think that had she just gone, there there needed to be a stopping point. Realistically, if she had tried as hard as she possibly could to come to a negotiated be, uh, peace with the situation, and they couldn't have done it, it was her obligation to then go forward with Brexit, regardless of the consequences. That's what the referendum said. That's what you were obligated to do because that's technically what the people wanted, regardless of what you think about if they were manipulated or they didn't have all the information. That's what the vote was. And I would have respected her for that, again, regardless of what the consequences were. At this point, you've now left it to lesser people to mitigate the damage that's going to be caused by this. And there will be severe damage caused by this. So... I, the fact that she was so wishy-washy about the whole thing, I, it 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 
really bothers me. You had an opportunity, regardless of what the end situation is, to attempt to prevent an even an even uh, a greater danger to the country than it, than it is now. I mean, than it's facing now. This this is a real problem because yeah, you have. You have a potential leader who realistically just wants a hard Brexit. You have a country that's still deeply divided about another referendum, and there's no plan for anything. You have nothing. It's interesting. I have a slightly different take on this. I, I don't I, think you should. But. <laughs> I, I don't think she will would go down in history as, as a great leader. But I also feel like the parliament was a bunch of children. Mm-hmm. There was, you know, the Conservative Party was not looking for an agreement. They didn't want to make hard choices. And she was left in a situation where there was no win. There was no really good option. I think what she did was try to forge what was in the best interest of the United Kingdom, try to find, and she negotiated a deal with Europe. That seems like a pretty good deal. And Parliament wanted nothing of it. The Conservatives won. So I think she's she's... She's going to get ripped for this, and she's going to get blamed for this. But I think the more of the blame falls on Parliament and the Conservatives than May in particular. Uh, Boris Johnson is is basically Donald Trump for the United Kingdom. Uh, yeah. He's you know he's he's more he's entertaining. He's a he's charismatic. I will say he's, he's I think he's smarter than Trump, uh, but he is. Somebody who is—he's a populist. He is—I don't know. It's going to be entertaining, but I don't think it's going to end in a good result for the UK. I think it's going to be a hard Brexit, and that—that that is a terrible, terrible choice for the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I—I I, 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 go ahead, Phil. No, I—I—if I think if if Boris Johnson emerges as the leader and they go over the cliff, I think it's going to—it's going to damage the UK. But I—I I don't know if this. Maybe I'm. Maybe I. Who knows in, in this new world? But in my mind, it's gonna all it's gonna deeply damage the Conservative Party for a really long time. So. Yeah. And if the Labour Party wasn't such a disaster right now, I know. I yeah. mean, the Labour is even worse right now. I mean, they're oh, that's a whole other speed round. Nick. All right, <laughs> yeah. let's talk about Pelosi. Oh, thank God. All right, last week in a series of manipulated videos that were subtly slowed down and then pitch corrected to make it appear as if the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was drunk or incapacitated were published across <laughs> Facebook and other social networks, including YouTube and Twitter. The videos were viewed millions of times. They were shared by the president's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, as well as dozens of pro-Trump media supporters. The president didn't share the altered video, but he did send out a tweet questioning the speaker's well-being and a version of a Fox News video. Uh, YouTube removed the video, but only after it amassed thousands of views. Twitter and Facebook did not remove the video. To give you a sense of what happens when you ever so slightly alter the speed of a video, here's a short clip of last week's Barstool Politics with us talking about the American Taliban at half speed. Go to the tape, Nick. (laughs) This is the whole idea. You you serve your time and then you have the chance to sort of re- you know, to prove yourself and whether he <laughs> does that or not, I don't know. I, is, am I being too optimistic and naive? Maybe, but but I think I think you're right that that has to be the real uh, the the way the legal system works. Part of his parole, Nick. Is he's banned from owning a web-capable device (laughs) or going online at all. (laughs) 
<laughs> so if he goes online. <laughs> yeah, we, I guess you could do it. We just do this. They had to have done something, you yeah. know. If that was what late nineties, early two thousands. He was doing something. Uh, uh, play that for the five minutes. Yeah. Oh, sure the <laughs> listeners would love that. Oh my god. Oh, that's great. All right, Phil. Oh. This feels like the tip of the iceberg for what is to come, and it absolutely terrifies me. We already live in a post-truth rhetorical world, and we are soon likely to live in a world where even we can't even trust what we see with our own eyes. Uh, thoughts or reactions, Phil? We're screwed. Okay, good. All right, that's what, what I figured. What are you talking <laughs> about? No, I mean, I, I think the the idea. I mean, this reveals all of the problems that we've talked about with social media, the, the extent to which people can quickly share things without any sort of fact checking. Um, you know, there have been stories that have been circulating in the news about altering videos, right? The, the ability to not like this, not just slow it down and pitch correct it, but to create make people say things they haven't said before. Um, I mean, the, the you know, the the crap that happened in the last election with Russia running um, essentially uh, interference campaigns. Uh, it's just the you're right. It's the tip of the iceberg. And and until we start to, I, I think, I, I don't know. I mean, until we trust each other, it's not going to happen. More, I know. I know. <laughs> I, 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 I couldn't even get it out of your mouth. Pressing as I continue to go down this road. I think that, you know, to go back to, again, the norm thing, this is why I mean, it's really it's disconcerting that this crap is happening and it goes so quickly around Facebook and especially the fact that Facebook and Twitter haven't taken this down is yep. um, crazy. But um, the fact that Rudy Giuliani and that the president is tweeting about it. And I mean, that's where it's now it has permeated every level of our political discussion. This is politics. This is the, this is modern politics. And I don't, maybe it's not that much worse than, you know, there were some version of <laughs> Nick is like, yeah, it's worse. Yeah. Um, I mean, there have been versions of this, right? Smear campaigns and stuff throughout history. It was just done on, you know, newspapers and, and whatnot. So maybe by by nature, it's not that different, but it feels it oh, feels yeah. like we're a doomed. different level. Mm. Yeah. Nick. I mean, you know, how many times we got to talk about this? Social yeah. media is just—it's just the bane of our society's existence at this point. It—it completely—it's broken down our ability to function on a on a societal level, and it, it realistically it comes down to the the laziness and gullibility of people. There should be some sort of barrier between you and fact gathering there needs to be some work for you to vet the information that you're getting mm -hmm. and when people are just taking this stuff to heart I, that's that's on you like it's more than so quickly too right i mean it's not like it's you know it's just a handful of individuals it's we're talking about millions of people within hours right yeah the idea that that the speaker of the house went up to a podium drunk slash mid-stroke and gave a press conference that people aren't like is this real yeah. maybe this <laughs> is not hey, accurate there it's, are it's, there are plenty of videos of her that she does sound bizarre, but this at the, at the same time, there are plenty of videos of Trump sounding sure. bizarre, and th that should not be news. Like I, I, I don't even know why this is a, this is a thing. But more importantly, now we've got social media um, platforms that because they don't want to be governmentally or uh, regulated by the government, they need to do something. So. 
their solution for this, at least with Facebook, was we're going to keep the video up, but we're going to put something ahead of that to say this was altered. She doesn't actually talk about this. It. Yeah, fact checking. That's, that's, so, oh, that's awful. But that's fine. I mean, Facebook. if you want, if you want to be a platform that just does everything, that's fine. But then you can take nothing down. Yeah. So it's either it's it's one way or the other, and I'm of the mindset that they just shouldn't exist in in the the incarnation that they exist at this point they're it's, they're yeah. dangerous to society it is it is dangerous and and so there's i think there's culpability for twitter facebook youtube all of them and i, I get the problem i get the challenge of trying to regulate this i think there's even more culpability for rudy giuliani and donald trump who could have come out and said disregard this this is garbage this was clearly an edited video we should be better i mean you don't even have you don't have to say anything just leave it alone well but they, they could have they could have stopped it by doing that to say this is inappropriate and they didn't they not only did they not do that they encouraged it uh, and even though trump didn't tweet out the specific video by doing what he did it, it gave it legs and it's just you're all both are you- right it's sad do you which is the like this is a chicken and egg situation for me and that what what like is it this sort of crap that's leading us to this deep polarization i i sort of think that it's the deep polarization that leads us to this crap in some ways in that like people people want to hate Nan- like people are smart yeah. right? I mean, and people are dumb but people most people are smart <laughs> enough to know that Nancy Pelosi slurring her speech is not like I think most people who see that don't think oh she's actually drunk they just want to hate her mm-hmm. and so that's where the people jump onto this video and they love this video and they share it and haha this is funny and so I, I think in some ways it's the polarization that's leading to this element of you know it, it's it's the hatred of the other side that is what stops Donald Trump or I mean I don't I don't want to give Donald Trump that much credit but it's what stops people from speaking out and saying this is wrong right it's because because we just like to pile on to the other side so I I, beg, I guess I think there are people who know better but still share this or eat it up mm-hmm. because of the polarization I, I don't know that it's that people think Nancy Pelosi is drunk and that's why they hate Democrats it's a structure right? agent debate Phil I structure know, agent I, I know <laughs> I, I think both things can be true though yeah. I feel like the polarization was always it's it, it's always kind of simmered there and this was just throwing jet fuel onto a fire these platforms take that kind of underlying mistrust of the other and the the need or want to be accepted by those that are similar to you and then give you an echo chamber to just kind of scream into and it just explodes it goes viral i i, I mean it's it's the perfect analogy for something going viral yep. and it, it is it's a virus it is a disease there's no longer a filter there's no walter cronkite saying this is garbage and i mean that's the thing that's where we're at and it terrifies me because groups are getting so good at manipulating this it's, we're going to see more and more of this. It's going to be more sophisticated. It's going to feed feed those desires that we want. Uh, you know, those that don't like Pelosi are going to love this. I'm sure there's videos of Trump. I mean, this is just it's it's going to spiral out of control. And unfortunately, I don't see any way this is going to slow down. Reason and rationality is not going to stop it, Nick. No, no, no apocalypse. Yeah, that's right. Dial yeah. up internet. Okay. Yep. All right, the, this, we're on the final topic. We're going here. back to AOL. That's right. You can get your discs at Blockbuster. 
All right, I'm really excited about this last one. And I may be the only one, but I'm excited about this. So we're going to close for, with some data from a New York Times op-ed this week by Dana Milbank. Uh, he asked FactBase, a data analytics company that analyzes language with artificial intelligence, which is all really cool stuff they do, to do analysis of Trump's speech compared to that of his predecessors. This meant FactBase's computer sifted through millions of words uttered by presidents all the way back to Her- Herbert Hoover, Hoover, yeah. Hoover uh, to compute in the intensity of each president's average positive comment and average negative comment. The results are fascinating, and we will tweet out the article in the graph. All of the presidents prior to Trump were amazingly similar in their scores. George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, Richard Nixon, all used about the same intensity of positive and negative rhetoric. And then there was Trump. Trump's average positive statement and his average negative statements were twice as extreme as all of his predecessors. And it's not just presidents. Trump's rhetoric is also about twice as extreme as the most extreme member of the last Congress. That means when Trump says something positive, it's really, really positive. And when he says something negative, it's really negative. Milbank argues that while there's no current politician who uses such extreme language, there are disturbing parallels to fascist and authoritarian leaders. Milbank is not suggesting that Trump is a fascist, simply that his language is. Now, whether we agree or disagree with Milbank's connection to fascism, this is some pretty wild data. Phil, did you, did you like this graph as much as I did? It was really interesting. Okay, I mean, good. so one of the things that, you know, um, you, it, I, one of the things I did notice is that whereas all of the previous president, presidents were pretty closely compacted together, there is a very slight trend, which is that there's a, this increasing, you know, there's a very slight increase of positive and negative rhetoric leading. I say slight because mm-hmm. then you get to Trump and it's this dramatic jump, shift. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I think you can see some of that, you know, yeah, not necessarily. It's not really polarization. It's the you know the power of the, the way we talk about politics. I think starting to change. So I didn't look at all the methodology of this or how it did. I, the thing that I, as like a political scientist, the thing I want to know is, I want to go back and look at the positives and the negatives and and what they reference. Because mm-hmm. what I, it's not that he's like, an equal opportunity positivist and negativist, yes, right? That's it's important. not that he's like. Uh, that he's, you know, on some days really speaking highly of John McCain and on other days really speaking negatively of him, right? <laughs> yes. It's I think that there are certain things that he is always consistently incredibly negative about and other things that he is always consistently incredibly positive about, mostly himself. Um, you know, I think about his rhetoric about, well, I mean, this is where, yeah. you know, when you describe yourself as an incredibly stable genius or whatever, <laughs> um, th- that's an example of really positive language that no president previously would have would have said. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I worry to the extent to which this is setting a new standard. This is how the new nature of of, of politics. I, I do find it really, really fascinating and uh, a little disconcerting. Yeah. Anytime you have data that shows one president as being so distinct from all yeah. other presidents, you have to dig more, de- you know, more deeply into that. What does that mean? Or just don't trust it. Well... <laughs> It's possible, but I will say this: that what what fact base is doing is really interesting. They, uh, um, it's just it's, to me, Trump is in some ways a used car salesman, right? He's mm-hmm. always trying to make his thing sound that much better and his opponents that much worse. But that oversimplification to say everything I do is great and everything the other side does is so so terrible is important. You know, we talk about this an era of this era of polarization. He's hyper-partisan in that way, right? Yep. And he's he's yep. oversimplifying where 
everything is good or everything is terrible, and that that's not a good place for a democracy to be. It's, no, it's, it's back to. Go ahead, it's Phil. Back to, it's back. <laughs> talked over the two of you so much. Today. Sorry. It's back to the thing I said earlier. I didn't even plan this. It's just now dawning on me when I was talking about, uh, you know, abortion, right? Where they with these extreme policies, and you and you miss the the all the gray, all the discussion about the causality or the policy in between. And this kind of fits that, right? In that it's it's not recognition that hey, there are different viewpoints. It's all in on this is yes. this is right, that's wrong. And the in between is is lost. Go ahead, Nick. No, I, I mean I think he's he's a product of his time, though. Too realistically, he's he's the monster that we all created. I, I mean, it's I, the rhetoric that he 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 gives to us that he he espouses is stuff that that we all eat up. And, and I, if it didn't work, if it wasn't effective, he wouldn't do it, and this data right. wouldn't exist. So it, we're responsible for all of this in the end. Um, I, you know, I, I, on the surface level, I don't know the methodology of how they gather the information or, uh, you know, how it was analyzed or, or what the criteria were. Um, so I would very much like to look into the details of it, but, um, yeah, I, I mean, you said it, he's, he's a used car salesman, but that's what he has. He yeah. doesn't have any real depth on anything. So all you have is emotion and emotion is a thing that clearly is driving everything that we do at this point uh, not from a, a let well i mean to some extent from a legislative standpoint but certainly from a political standpoint that's all we care about is who is more bombastic and yeah. who who gives us what we want the most and he's really good at either giving us what we want or again telling the other side that they're awful terrible hugely bad people that's a really important point because <laughs> if you think about the way that a democracy should work is it's through conversation so people who disagree engage each other and they may not agree on their core points but they recognize their common humanity right there's there's some way to move forward when you've drifted to this type of extreme language it reinforces this position that the other side isn't worth negotiating with. Mm -hmm. The other side is criminal, they're terrible, lock them up, and what everything I do is so amazing. Like, why even have discourse? Why have any kind of engagement? And that, that's scary in a democracy. Mm -hmm. And so, again, I, I don't think Trump's a fascist, but I think he oftentimes uses language as a way to benefit himself sure. in really, really dangerous ways. Of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This was fun. That was fun. Oh, thanks for letting me talk data. <laughs> I just want to listen to yeah. those slowed down clips. For the, that's how I'm going to listen to the podcast from now on. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, do you want to do things? Sure, the thing about the, the Facebook is we should... Yeah, do all that All right, stuff. so if you enjoy the podcast, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> if you're still After listening... we've badmouthed social media that's this right, whole time. That's right. Follow we're us not, on Twitter and Facebook. We're not on YouTube yet, but we should be, Nick. We should get on the YouTube. You know, we should get on the YouTube. We should do the YouTube. We're, we're working on yeah. it. Yeah. Um, all right. Now you can take over. You got the music. <laughs> what, did, did we get through Facebook? Yeah, we did the Facebook and the Twitter. And the Twitter. All right. <laughs> um, uh, beers that we try. Uh, beer reviews. Uh, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics. Uh, the podcast, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting podcasting platforms. Oh, I got. Um, and then we are partnered with uh, Predicted, which uh, if you weren't here at the beginning of the show, 
uh, predicted as a real money political prediction market, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy or sell shares in future political events. Uh, Barstool Politics listeners um, who open up a new account receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. Um, so, for example, if you open up a $20 account, predicted will match that $20, giving you $40 to use. Um, all you have to do is use the promo link, predicted.org, slash promo, slash Barstool 20 um, to check it out. So definitely do that. Good stuff. Anything else, guys? No, this is a fun one. Yeah. Phil? I'm yeah. good. <laughs> now you don't have anything to say? I know. I'm not going to talk over you anymore now that it's over. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Cheers. Shut up and sit down.